Pulse Audio Podcast Network. Welcome back, Herstory Heroes, to another episode of Whining About Herstory, the women's history podcast where two longtime besties with breasties drink wine and chat about women from history you probably haven't heard of. We're pairing fine wine with fine women. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And thank you so much for joining us. We're so excited to have you back. And every time you say besties with breasties, I laugh. Every time. And that's why I say it. <laughs> you don't have to have breasties to be besties, but we are and we do. So... <laughs> Oh, welcome back. Uh, this will be after the holidays, but before the new year. This, is this our last episode of 2019? This is the last episode of 2019. Oh my God. Uh, How much have we grown? We've, 40 episodes worth. Yeah. Oh, Jesus. I like, think about that. I'm like, what episode are we on? 40. That's crazy. 40 I mean, episodes worth. That's how much we've grown. That's a ton of women. That's a fuck ton of empowerment. Yeah, it is. That's 80 women. Yeah. Minimum. Because I'm pretty sure there were some that one of us covered more than one. My second episode was literally seven women. (laughs) Minimum 80 women. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, goodness gracious. Well, 2019 has been a blast in a lot of ways. And hopefully 2020 is better for everyone. It's going to be. I have to believe it putting it out into the universe. It's going to happen. It's on my vision board. I'm talking to my therapist about it. Yeah, I'm going to get a therapist <laughs> to talk about it with. I can recommend mine. I, have I actually I actually really like my therapist. I'm really glad to hear well, that. I haven't seen in a while, but you it's know, important it's a thing. to like your therapist. I actually there's a uh, there's a local nonprofit that supports veterans and also the families of veterans and because Jared's a veteran, I'm able to get some free like counseling service ah that's gonna be loud (laughs) sorry about that i just need my microphone oh no um but i'm able to get some free counseling services and it's one of those things where i life is so overwhelming that even scheduling the appointment seems like too much like i can literally text my therapist to get an appointment and i still haven't even though i'm like i should probably go see my therapist yeah You know, there is this service. uh, This is not a sponsorship. This is just something that Kelly and I have heard of called Talkspace. And it basically is that texting your therapist any time of day. And they have office hours. I still wouldn't do it. Well, you... Some people might like to do it, Kelly. This isn't yes, all about you. I know, but we need to not. We're not sponsored. Sponsor okay. us and we'll talk about it. Check out Talkspace. You can text your therapist at any time. They have office hours in which they'll respond. It's cheaper than therapy, especially insurance is a pain. Taking time off work, getting there, emotionally it's, dumping within one it's hour. About it's the a lot. same as a standard therapist would be, although I don't know if it's as widely covered by um insurance companies as like a traditional therapist would be okay um so that's something to look into just well and not all going... insurance companies cover therapy exactly. so talk space so, might be a more affordable option for you yeah so just something to look into if you need someone like, for to help me you... my therapist is cheaper than doing talk space wow can i get your insurance uh I can't. No. It's through. <laughs> like, you can go work for the hospital I work for, and then yeah, you can. Yeah, no. I'm good. I'm we're good. Just, we're just going to go into the wine. The wine. Yeah, we're let's talk about, about wine. Actually, no. Speaking we're... of therapy. <laughs> we need to do a toast first. No, we need to talk about the wine first. Yes. See, look. 40 we episodes. 40 episodes. <laughs> we'll get it right eventually. So this is from the Rodney Strong Vineyards. Ooh. It's a 2018 rosé of Pinot Noir from the Russian River Valley. 
in Sonoma County. Is this our first rosé Pinot Noir? I think so. I, I don't know. I guess I, I don't know so. what's normally in a Pinot Noir. It's normally not a rosé. Right. So it says, at Rodney Strong Vineyards, we focus on modern artisan winemaking exclusive, exclusively from Sonoma County, California. Our family-owned winery is committed to producing quality wines and to protecting our resources for the future. Russian River Valley is an ideal, cool climate region to grow Pinot Noir, and when picked early, this same Pinot Noir can be coaxed into a fresh, vibrant rosé. Mm. This beautifully colored rosé has flavors and aromas of strawberry, white peach, and jasmine with a juicy finish of refreshing acidity. Sploosh. Yeah. So there you go. I'm, I'm excited to try this. So this is a Pinot Noir rosé. Mm-hmm. So what are we cheersing to, Kelly? The end of 2019. The end you of should have seen that coming. I, I literally the asked the question and was and like, Emily. To the best 2020. Best 2020. Hey, the okay. The roaring 20s, 100 baby. years ago, there was prohibition in the 20s. So we're already off to a better start. This is going to be the roaring 20s 2.0. 2.0. Love it. Cheers. Ooh, good clink. I don't know if the mics pick that up anymore. We have new mics. I know we might have to like here. Let <laughs> me let me here. We'll do this. Oh jeez. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna cheers. Self first. cheers. All right. Twenty twenty two point oh no. Yeah. Nineteen roaring twenties. Yeah, point oh. <laughs> it was like this is the first twenty twenty. God damn. Just cheers. Ooh, that might have hurt people's ears a little bit. That was intense. Right. Headphone users beware. <laughs> Are you? Okay? Oh my god! I inhaled it and it went up my nose. Oh, I was like, "What just happened?" Oh my god! I hope that's not indicative of what twenty twenty is going to be like because that was me choking and like snuffing wine. <laughs> it's very dry. It's definitely got like that fruity tang to it. I could taste the strawberries in the beginning, and then it just went weird after that. And I can't describe the flavor other than like a weird tang there is another wine that we had that reminds me of this because i think we both thought it was going to be very um fruity and full and and this is a little drier it's more subtle i think that uh that emily wine yeah, I think that was, was yeah. like that god maybe that was a rose pinot noir i don't remember I don't what that was i think it was a rose yeah we might have to look back on the instagram for that anyway i like it i mean this is kind of like our last wine you can't chug this this is a sipper it will make you appreciate it yeah, it is worth it the time it's not bad it was a very pretty label i like it yeah i'm a fan I'm, I'm okay with it i'd buy this not for like binging mind hunters right or anything <laughs> else this but is not a binging wine, but for like a is, nice party. I would buy this for someone. Like, yeah, this would be a I good feel gift. like it would make me look classy to right. bring this, this to like a party. Bucks. Not oh, bad. Oh, yeah, I should actually wine. read like what it said at the like store about oh, this yeah. wine. So this was a 92 point in the wine enthusiasts in 28. So the last one was 94. This one's a 92. Okay. So still up there. This one says, flavors of candied orange peel, raspberry, and strawberry shine in this rosé sourced from the producer's estate. Stainless steel fermented, it has a punch of acidity that makes it quaffable and fresh. Quaffable as fuck, yeah. Can I just say, what what is this from? The Randy Strong? Rodney Strong. Rodney, that's better. That is the best porn name. 
Rodney Strong. I don't know. I think Randy Strong would be better because Ra- Rod- Randy is also like you yeah, know. but Rodney like Rod. I guess true. Rodney and Randy are they're equally, equally good porn yeah. names. But yeah, that's his name is Rodney Randy Strong. Ooh, <laughs> God, I feel like I'm in one of those romance novels right. you get at the airport. It's like Rodney Strong took her in his. Pulse, pulsing biceps and held her close. She could hear his heart like beating fast biceps. under his sweaty chest as he held her to his breast. All right, we're going to take a little break. It's <laughs> <laughs> the second episode in a row that we're like, all right, <laughs> let's talk about vibrators topic. now. Um, <laughs> all right, Kelly, you're uh, going first. I am, and I'm covering someone from... BC, so we're going way back. <laughs> For a second, I thought BC was a place. I'm like, don't you mean like, wait, do you British mean like Columbia? British Columbia? No, or no, do you mean BC, BC before Christ? Oh man. Um, so this this woman's name is Enheduanna. That's it. Enheduanna. Oh, that's one name. Just one name. Enheduanna. Okay. Yep. She's Sumerian. Ooh. So, like we're going way back. I don't this think we've is done a Sumerian. 23rd gal. century BC. 23 was a good year yeah, for me. Right. I, had, I, I had graduated from college. I was working with some kids. I was, you know, I was an adult, but not tons of pressure. Right. So Enheduanna is the earliest known poet whose name has been recorded. Mm. She was the high priestess of the goddess Inanna and the moon god Nana, or Sin. And she lived in the Sumerian city-state of Ur. You are Ur. I'm pronouncing it Ur. I don't know if that's right. We're going with Ur, though. I love that. Where do you live? Ur. <laughs> Ur. Are you, are, are, did you forget where you, no, it's Ur. S- seriously? Yes. Right. So I'm, I'm doing like the overview and then I'll kind of go into more of the history because it's a lot of like, this is what we found kind of okay. thing. You know? So she was the first known woman to hold the title of EN, a role of great political importance that was often held by royal daughters. And my initials. Right. It all makes sense now. I'm um, a goddess. They do think she was the king's daughter, but at the same time, it could have been more of like a, I just lost, like a term of endearance than an actual daughter. They're not 100% sure, but they, okay. they say that... And I'll go over who her father was too, because he was the person that united Mesopotamia. So he's kind of kind a big of deal. a big deal. <laughs> but yeah, so she was the first person to hold a role of great political importance. She was appointed to the role by her father, King Sargon of Akkad. Um, her mother, Queen Tashlatum, was probably also a priestess, but not like high priestess like her daughter was. Right. Um. And Heduanna was, like I said, appointed the role of high priestess in a shrewd political move by her father to help secure power in the south of his kingdom, which is where the city of Ur was located. Mm-hmm. Basically, she ended up with this role that she kind of had to combine the two gods because there was in Mesopotamia at the time, there was like the Sumerians and then the Akkad people, I think is how it was pronounced. Akkadian. The Akkadian people. And so when her father reunited Mesopotamia, he was like, okay, we kind of need to like combine the gods to Unite. make everybody happy, basically. Yeah, and so like, that was basically what she had to do. Why pick and choose when you can have an all-in-one deity to meet all of your needs? Right. And so she she basically did that. And a lot of this literature 
is a lot of that is a lot of like the temple hymns and stuff like that so that was a huge role yeah um she was she was in charge of uniting deities yep and she i mean he ruled from the northern part her father and so she was in the south so like she kind of like religiously ruled from the south like it was kind of cool she continued to be high priestess until the reign of her brother rimush Mimush? Rimush. Rimush. R-I-M-U-S-H. Okay. Rimush. Um, when she was involved in some form of political turmoil, they don't really go into it, um, she was expelled as high priestess oh, and shit. eventually reinstated. I, I, I do go into that in more detail. Okay. I was like, what was the political turmoil? I don't know. I, I yeah. Um, she wore Crocs to the office and everyone's like, what the fuck? Yeah. She did. She wrote something called The Exaltation of Inanna or Ninmi Sara. Um, which details her expulsion from Ur and eventual reinstatement. So she didn't even get kicked out of just being high priestess. They're like, nah, you're banished from the city. You need oh to leave. Oh my God. Yeah. People really hate Crocs. That's my hersery head cannon. It was all about <laughs> fucking rubber shoes. <laughs> so as I said, she may or may not have been the daughter of Sargon Akkad, or no, she's also known as Sar- Sar- Sargon the Great. Thank you. Okay. okay. So I said, so the 23rd BC, so she was actually born in 2285 BC. So that's 20, you know, 23rd century BC. So 20, okay. 2285. So yeah. And as I said, whether she was actually a blood relative or if it was a title, no one's incredibly sure. We're just going to go with she's actually his daughter. Yeah. Her story had for, for the purposes of this story, she might as well just be his daughter. Right. Because that was the level of the relationship. Exactly. Okay. Yes. Whether he was her sperm donor or not, because you know what? Anyone can be a father. It takes a real man to be a dad. Okay. So besides um, giving her the job of melding deities, which he needed to have the stability in his emperor, she also is credited with creating paradigms of poetry, psalms, and prayers used throughout the ancient world and the development of genres recognized in the present day. The scholar Paul Krawazitz writes, Her compositions, though only rediscovered in modern times, remained models of petitionary prayer for centuries. Through the Babylonians, they influenced and inspired the prayers and psalms of the Hebrew Bible and the Homeric hymns of Greece. Through them, faint echoes of and Heduana, sorry, I had to swallow. And Heduana, the, f- the first named literary author in history, can even be heard in the Himadi hima- of the early Christian church. Can I just say, you are fucking wrecking these pronunciations, like in a good way. Like you're tackling them beautifully. I'm just like, fuck it. Let's do it. You know, I feel like if you say most things with confidence, people are just going to accept right? it. So. And Heduana's name translates as the high priestess of An. An was the sky god. So, so Heduana was more of her title. Hedu, uh, like no, high that's priestess. her name. Oh, it just happened to have An. Yep. And, okay. Okay. <laughs> um, she, I need so to stop she originally about it. came from the northern city of Akkad. So she was originally from the north. Mm-hmm. Um, and Cro- the same. Guy Kredowitz notes, "Quote: She would have had a Semitic birth name, but when mo- when she moved to Ur, the heartland of the Sumerian culture, she took a Sumerian. Oh, you're right. She took a Sumerian official official title, and Huata N or chief priestess, Hedu as ornament, and Anna of heaven. I knew something. I didn't even know it. Whoa. Wow, that like slipped past me. Like when I was actually researching. Well, I was I was thinking like I know in um." 
in but there's, Egypt, but there's no mention of, of like what her original name was. Okay. So because this is what she was known as. Yes. All right. So yeah. So yeah. Chief ornament of heaven. <laughs> Chief priestess ornament of heaven. That's basically what her name is. Love it. So when she moved to Ur, she organized and presided over the city's temple complex, which was the heart of the city at the time, and held her own against an attempted coup by a Sumerian rebel named Lugal An, who forced her into exile. Oh my god. Was that the political discourse? Yeah. Also, it wasn't about Crocs. The Akkadian Empire, for all the wealth and stability it brought to the region, was constantly plagued by uprisings in various regions under its control. One of Enhuara's responsibility in the region of Sumer would have been to keep the populace in check through religion. So like I said, she was basically ruling through religion in the South in the name of her father. In the case of Legul An, however, she seems to have invested, at least initially, in her poem, The Exaltation of Inanna. That's such a weird... Inanna. Yeah, that's right. Okay. She tells the story of being driven from her post as high priestess and cast into exile. She writes a plea for help to the goddess Inanna, requesting her to petition the god An for help. This is what she wrote. Funeral offerings were brought as if I had never lived there. I approached the light, but the light scorched me. I approached the shade, but I was covered with a storm. My honeyed mouth became scummed. Tell An about Lugu An... <laughs> Legal Ane and my fate. May An undo it for me. As soon as you tell An about it, An will release me. So she's like, hey, these guys are fucking me over. God An, take care of this yeah, shit. Yeah, she's she's writing to the god Inanna to like be like, hey, tell An, who's like must be a higher god, you yeah. know, what happened, basically. Because and these people are being dicks. It. Yeah. Okay. Um Inanna apparently heard her prayer and through divine intercession and Huana was finally restored to her rightful place in the temple. She seems to have been the first woman to hold this position in Ur, and her comportment as high priestess would have served as an exemplary model for those who followed her. Nice. So she was was a big deal. Well, and, you know, religion is very complicated nowadays, it seems, and I think we're understanding it as being more complex than we did in the day. That makes no sense, but let me just push through this. Yeah. It was such a big deal to be a high religious figure, and you were running the show. Right, So she's in this incredible position of power. Like, she fucking melded gods together. Yeah, and like in our lives specifically, I feel like religion does not play a big part. Religious leaders don't always play a big part. But this is everything. You do not fuck with the gods, and that means you do not fuck with the person who speaks for the gods. Exactly. Or in this case, God, because they're melded. No. Like, no, no, she melded two religions' gods together. So there were still multiple gods. Okay. Because, she, like I said, she was praying to Inanna. But they're all partying in the same house. Exactly. Okay. It's a, it's a, it would it's be a like, G- it's kind of like the Greek and the Romans are really like one set yeah. of gods. But It's like a divine house party. Yeah, exactly. I love that. So the work she's best known for, um, so I'm going to try the Sumerian pronunciations. Um, I believe Because they're all you. one word, which is great. Uh, so her works that she's best known for is Ininsagura, or The Great-Hearted Mistress, Ninmasara, or The Exaltation of Inanna, and Ininmehusa, or The Goddess of the Fearsome Powers. All three hymns are about the goddess Inanna, later, en- later identified with goddesses such as Akkadian slash Assyrian god Ishtar, the Hittite Sasuke, and the Greek Aphrodite. Oh, shit! So, like, all of those were kind of based on Inanna. Wow. 
Yeah. By the way, I love yeah. that you are killing these like ancient Sumerian pronunciations and yet French still escapes both right. of us. <laughs> <laughs> I love I French people, but fuck your language. I'm I sorry. can't. I can't. You guys are on another level that I can never aspire to be on. Yeah. So, and these hymns, these three hymns, and I'm sure other ones, uh, are kind of what redefined the gods for the people. They helped provide underlying religious homogeny, you know, that the, the king sought and kind of like, you know, we're like, this is what our gods are all about. All the gods are playing nice and they're all right? a part of the same overarching belief exactly. system. Okay. For, for over 40 years, Enhuata held the office of high priestess. Wait, how many years? 40. Oh my God. That That's, I think, including like both sections, like, because she technically overcame the coup. So like... I think they're saying between like when she had it and then there was the coup and yeah, then but, she held. Like, yeah, still, I don't years. think that detracts. No. That's incredible. Like, and she's the first woman to hold this the position. High priestess. Yeah, I think I, they must have all been male before her. Dang. So in addition to her hymns, um, she is remembered for 42 other poems she wrote reflecting personal frustrations and hopes, relig- religious devotion, her response to wars that broke out, and feelings about the world she lived in. Her writing is personal and direct, and the historian Stephen Burtman notes, the hymns provide us with the names of the major divinities the Mesopotamians worshipped and tell us where their chief temples were located. But it is the prayers that teach us about humanity, for in prayers we encounter the hopes and fears of the everyday mortal. So this was an incredible level of insight to people's day, day-to-day living at that right. time. Exactly. Wow. Um, and it all came from a lady. Yep. And 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 Heduana's honestly expressed the hopes and fears. And, and she like I said, she did so in a, a very distinct voice. Like, she was very much her own person. Mm-hmm. Um, Paul Krawazitz, so back to the original historian I mentioned, okay. notes, quote, sitting in her chamber or perhaps her office, for the director of an enterprise as large and prestigious as the Nanan Temple of Irma surely have been afforded the very best working arrangements. Her hair beautifully coiffed by a Lumpalis, her hairdresser. She had a hairdresser. They know this. Yes. Um, and staff dictating to her scribe, perhaps the very sag- Sagadu who seal Wooly found. So they must have. I'm guessing Wooly is a person. Okay. And Heduana proceeded to make her permanent mark on history by composing in her own name a series of more than 40 extraordinary liturgical works, which were copied and recopied for nearly 2,000 years. Oh, my God. Yeah. So 2,000 years, this woman's name was floating around along with her works. And not only, like, is the skill she had impressive, like, apparently her they're saying her works were very beautiful, too. Yeah. Like... Um, and there was a, they obviously made a huge impact on Mesopotamian theology, like because she's combining two different religions into one, basically. And she's kind of she wasn't the person to decide that, but she was the person leading right. that initiative. She was the figurehead for yep. this new de- like divine house party. Yep. What they say is that she drew the gods closer to the people of the land, synthesizing Sumerian Akkadian beliefs to create a richer understanding than either had before. So basically she combined these religions and like made the religion better because of it. Wow. Right. Um and and Heduana's reflections on the the moon god Nana, for example, made him deeper and more sympathetic character and she ve- elevated Inanna from a local vegetative deity to an all-powerful queen of the heaven. <gasps> queen of the heaven. Yep. That's hot. I love it. 
Along with these two deities, she transformed others through her work and appeared more compassionate and have them appear more compassionate than before. Gods for all of the people, not only the Sumerians and the Akkadians. I like that. Right. It's all very uh, accessible. Yep. So some people say the great allure and what what made people really respond to Enhuata's work was her open sensuality and ardent devotion to these gods. Mm-hmm. I mentioned before the poem, um, The Great-Hearted Mistress, which is also um, known as a, a hymn to Inanna, simply. Um, she writes part two lines from it. Actually, no, this is like five lines from it. I thought it ended because like, there's like three dots. So I just got confused. <laughs> So she wrote, this is about Anana. You are magnificent and your name is praised. You alone are magnificent. My lady, I am yours. This will always be so. May your heart be soothed towards me. Your divinity is resplendent in the land. My body has experienced your great punishment. Lament, bitterness, sleeplessness, distress, separation, mercy, compassion, care, lenience, and homage are yours. And to cause flooding, to open hard ground and turn darkness to light. That is a lot of pressure for a female deity. Right. Like, well, and the fact that well, a, a and, woman's writing this and is right. just like, you're so fucking wonderful. Yeah. Like, you know, what, what's interesting is you kind of mentioned like Eduana's uh, devotion was really what sold this right. whole merger. <laughs> which, Like the whole, right? it's the whole idea of a religious merger is just incredible to me. But... you. When we th- when we think about religion, especially past religion, like the Roman right. gods, the Greek gods, you know, we definitely look at it through that lens of like, this is all made up, you know, how kind of funny for them to think that on a mountain that literally anyone right. could have climbed to the top <laughs> of, there were a bunch of super powered, you know, gods living there. And we don't look at our own, re- like modern religions that way. And I think that's out of just, you know, modern tastes and respect. But for her to know that this was like a unifying merger right. and to be bu- and, and to, to be, be into so it. devoted. And, and I mean, obviously, she must have believed in these gods. But then even too, though she knew she was combining like two religions together, she she still must have been like super into it. It must have been like the logical conclusion. Yeah, it must have just been like, her, obviously, like, this god and this god are the same god. Yeah, you know? like it was the humans that, you know, said they were separate. And that was just incorrect. But then for exactly. that to branch out from those two communities to be more overarching right and a widespread religion Isn't that it, fucking it, yeah. blows my oh, mind yeah. um so the poem goes this poem goes on to um praise inanna for her gifts of desirability and arousal um mm. and and huana actually notes that she has the power to quote turn a man into a woman and a woman into a man a possible reference to the androgyny of inanna's clergy and cult followers like apparently she was really big with like all sexes um, Inanna's temples and attendant rituals were administered by clergy of both sexes, and her devotees were noted for their habit of cross-dressing, blending, blurring, or eliminating the distinction between male and female in pursuit of transcendence through Inanna. Can I just say that anyone who thinks that trans people or are new gender thing. neutral or gender fluid or non-binary or whatever are new? This is in the BC. This people. is bc a bunch of people who are like gender is just so restricting you guys to really you know transcend to the next level we need to abandon this binary bullshit that we've created because it is not what the gods want that is amazing and it says and huata herself 
alludes to having the same experience with Inanna throughout her works. In the lines to numerous, um, in lines too numerous to cite, that's what it's supposed to say, she implores the goddess to take her, to be one with her, to destroy and save her. Um, these same sentiments you can kind of see expressed in the Psalms of the Bible, though obviously with far less sensuality. Mm-hmm. Um, the biblical poem, The Song of Songs, which I, I'm sure I've heard somewhere in my career as a, you know, growing up as a Christian. Obviously, I've said before that I'm not really one now, but, you know, like I'm sure I came across it. But apparently the Song of Songs is the one that comes closest to approximating the passion of Enhuana's en- en- hymns. Wow. Like she was just so passionate in her writing. I wonder if if that passion translates into Enuana's uh own androgyny or maybe not adhering to the binary the gender binary. Probably. I'm, I I'm would definitely a, think so. I'm making a ton of like wild speculations and don't take anything that I say oh, seriously. Fine. But I, I'm really stuck on that whole like skewing the binary and ideas of gender and gender performance because of religion instead right. of in spite of. And for her to be super like, this is fucking it, you guys. And so passionate about it. Right. I just I'm re- because we it's so long ago, we really don't know a lot about her personally. Right. So I'm making a bunch of assumptions. Um, and unfortunately, because it's so long ago, there is obviously some controversy regarding this high power women woman. Um, Do they think she was actually a guy? I'll let me read this. Oh, no. So there's no doubt that she lived like they know she lived and that she was a high priestess at her. No history had canon. No, no history had canon required. That's legit history. Okay. (laughs) However, scholars question whether this woman can be considered the author of the hymns bearing her name. Scholar Jeremy Black, for example, claims that while there is enough evidence to establish her historicity historicity i like that yeah no that's literally what it is historicity her her legitimate historical presence um but there is none suggesting she wrote the poems she is famous for he notes quote at best we can say that enheduana had a scribe known to us by his cylinder seal and that it is possible even likely that hymns were composed on her behalf at worst, it should be pointed out that all manuscript sources from the second millennial BCE, mostly from the 18th century, some six centuries after she lived. So some of the hymns that she's credited for weren't created until Well, they're centuries? saying that the sources they found that bear her hymns, which are probably just reproductions, okay. were, were found some six centuries after she lived. I'm like, I don't know why that necessarily discredits her as the author. Right. Shut like, up, it's, Jeremy. It kind of sounds like he's <laughs> trying to say that, oh, it was probably her scribe that wrote them, not her. Like, and who, like, who cares if the scribe actually physically wrote them? If she dictated it. Right. Like, well, I, I, I'm sorry. Am I the doctor if I'm, if I'm a translator for the doctor's notes? Does that make me the doctor, even though I'm the one writing it? So I guess I'm confused as to where the, and here's the thing. I'm definitely biased because right? I, want I know, right? <laughs> We're not we're not actual historians who are like, well, actually, according uh, to uh, X, uh, Y, and yeah, Z, no this is the truth. But I'm wondering why why that idea that, well, actually, maybe she didn't write these was brought up, or maybe these weren't her words was brought up. Because why would she be elevated to such a high position if she wasn't coming up with any of this? You know? Yeah, it sounds I like know. she had a secretary who was, like, jotting the stuff down. Who gives down. a shit? Yeah. 
um, herstory headcanon right. whining about herstory stamp of approval. She wrote all of her own shit and she's a goddess. So um, the objection to Enheduanna's authorship has been challenged on the grounds that the poet names herself in a number of in, in a number of her works. So basically the people on the opposite side are like, she she says that she's writing this. Like it it sounds like no offense, Jeremy, but it right. sounds like you're just kind of like looking for reasons it right. wasn't her while everyone else is like, well, why would you think it couldn't be her? Right, like, exactly. Like what spurred this so, line of thinking? In the Great Hearted Mistress, which I read an excerpt from, she mm-hmm. names herself, and then in the ex- Exaltation of Inanna, she also names herself to establish her authorship. Right. Um, later ri- writers attributed the poetry to her and Paul Krawazek, so the guy from the beginning, says, and Heduana proceeded to make her permanent mark on history by composing, in her own name, a series of more than 40 ex- extraordinary liturgical works which were copied and recopied for nearly 2,000 years. So yes, I repasted my quote from earlier, but I don't care because it applies. Yeah, it it sounds like Paul's pretty much on board. Like, right? I don't understand why people are saying that this wasn't her. And it does say, disregarding the textual and historical evidence for her authorship on the grounds that it is more likely the poems were written by a male scribe is untenable. So basically they're saying it doesn't matter if it's written by a, a male scribe that does that doesn't make it not her work. Right. Like, how about this? Here's a modern day example. A lot of biographies are written by ghostwriters. So does that make it not that person's biography because somebody else is writing it? That's actually a really good point. Do you like, mean that's a do you huge mean, thing? Do you mean autobiographies? Yes. Okay. I was going to say, a lot of people's biographies are uh, not written by the all, all biographies are written by other people. <laughs> the majority of biographies. But yeah, no, a lot of people that write autobiographies have a ghostwriter because yeah. they don't have time to fucking sit down and write their own autobiography. So they just give all their stuff to another person and go, here, make this a book. There's literally movies about this. Yeah. Okay. Sorry little bit angry um <laughs> it seems far more probable that the cylinder seal of her scribed was used on documents to authenticate them as coming from her office which was a common use of that seal and does not argue for the scribes authorships of her work Anything? so literally like my sources are like yes a male scribe may have written them yes he signed them with his little thing which was normal and doesn't mean she didn't write them. You know what I it's love, just too? fucking Jeremy, dude. So, <laughs> Jeremy, Jeremy, honey. Go get laid. It'll <laughs> God damn it. Oh, my God. Oh, okay. that's funny. But, like, everything I write from now on, I'm just going to sign it. BT dubs, Emily actually write this. Yeah, wrote right. this. I'm not kidding. This is Emily. Every Twitter at the very bottom, it'll just say written by Emily. Seriously. At realemily.com. <laughs> yeah. You're going to have to make another Twitter handle that's like at realemilyn or something. You know, like at, at realemilynotscribe.com. <laughs> hashtag women can write their own fucking stories. Jeremy. <laughs> Poor Jeremy. Like, I'm sure he's a great guy, and we're well, just like obviously him to he's pieces. a historian. So, like, yeah. <laughs> hey, you know, Sorry, here, Jeremy. okay, I'm putting this out there, Jeremy. If this podcast somehow reaches you, please talk be a to guest. us. We'll talk to you. We will totally talk to you. Like, also remember, this is like a goofy podcast. Like, this is comedy. So, <laughs> yeah, 
We might make a little bit more fun. We of act you, like assholes. But, you know. but like I I'd be really interested no, because I, it doesn't would, seem like there's an like, origin exactly. for that line and of I, thinking. I was like maybe he knows like maybe something that didn't get pulled out in my research. Yeah, maybe he's like, "Oh, this is why." And that just didn't come across in my research. And so we're just like, "You're a fucking jackass." <laughs> <laughs> but not really, Jeremy. We no. respect you. We respect feelings. you. Yeah. But it's Herstory headcanon. She wrote her own shit. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Supported so, Herstory headcanon. Hey, look, I finally talk about who Wooly is. <laughs> oh, the yeah. Very end of my notes. Who's Wooly Bully um, Worm? So in 1927, the British archaeologist, Sir Leonard Wooly. Okay. Which is actually a great name. That is a great name. Found the now famous and who and Heduana calcite disc in his ex- excavation. So he's the guy that like found her shit. Oh. And apparently I didn't mention it till now. He found so he found three inscriptions on her disc and, and which identified four figures and Heduana, her estate manager Ada, um, her hairdresser, which I love I that, love that her, her hairdresser has a voice in all of right. this. Elilum Palalis. Pelilis, whatever. And her scribe, Segadu. Segadu. Um, the royal inscription on this disc reads, And Heduanu, Zero Priestess, wife of the god Nanan, daughter of Sargon, king of the world, in the temple of the goddess Inanan. So there's Nanan, who's apparently a god, and she's the wife of. Which I guess, that's a normal thing for priestesses, yeah. to be, like, married to a god. Even, I... I actually just listened to something that said that the idea of nuns being married to God is maybe not totally accurate, but we're very familiar with that exactly. sentiment. Um, so the the figure on this calcite disc of Enheduanna is pr- is placed very prominently, and it emphasizes her importance with the relation to others, further the position of great power and influence on the culture of her time, which we already discussed. Wooly also uncovered a temple complex where the priestesses were buried in a special cemetery. Um, Paul Krawazik, he's in a lot of my notes. You know, Paul, also, if you're listening, we would love, <laughs> we to, would talk love to, to talk to you. Paul, um, hit us up. He, Slide into our DMs right? with your her, with your history knowledge. Or herstory knowledge. Or herstory knowledge. Both. He wrote, uh, records suggest that offerings continued to be made to these dead priestesses. That one of the most striking artifacts, physical proof of Enheduanna's existence, was found in a layer of data, uh, in a layer datable to many centuries after her lifetime, makes it likely that she, in particular, was remembered and honored long after the fall of the dynasty that had appointed her to the management of the temple. So she almost became a part of the whole yeah, deity exactly. sphere. Uh, further proof of her profound impact on culture is that she is still remembered and honored in the in present day poem in in the present day, and poems are still composed on the model she created four thousand years ago. So she is like patient zero for amazing poetry. Yeah. Wow. Basically. Good grief. Da, 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 da. I think I think that might be the end. I have a bunch more stuff, but it was like other. So I'm trying to just see if any of it's actually, like, important. <laughs> and here's the thing. If you want more of Kelly's show notes, you can check out our website, whiningaboutherstory.com, where so, we post summaries of all our uh, all of our episodes. Sweet. And feel free to cite them in your college papers. We won't promise you'll pass, but feel free to cite us. <laughs> right. Um, so I do have one more thing. So she, being not only the earliest known poet in world history, um, she's also one of the earliest w- women known to history because mm-hmm. that's the thing a lot of women got a ra- like we know women existed but she's one of the first like recorded powerful women in general in general wow um 
she's obviously because of that she's obviously received substantial attention in feminism even though i found her through uh today i learned on reddit (laughs) shout out today i learned on reddit oh my god i fucking love reddit i don't know how to use reddit and i'm scared to learn i'm Um, already becoming that old person like i don't use regular reddit i have the app reddit is fun on my phone because it's easier (laughs) oh my god is does it just filter out all of the like once, Deep once, you, Reddit stuff? once you subscribe to subreddits, that's like all it shows. You. Okay. Uh, okay, sorry. So sh- in 2014, to mark International Women's Day, the British Council hosted a pre launch event for Niniti International Literature Festival in er- Erbil, Iraq, where writer and previous Niniti participant Rachel Holmes delivered a TED talk looking back 5,000 years of feminism from major female Sumerian poet and Heduana to contemporary writers who also attended the festival. And this is a TED talk yeah. that we will be sharing on our social media. Yes. Perfect. I mean, it's in 2014. I'm sure we'll be able to find it. Oh, yeah. Um, and then in 2017, London and Oxford professor of ancient Near Eastern history, Eleanor Robson, uh, described an Heduana as a wish fulfillment figure, a marvelously appealing image. I'm not sure if that's a compliment or an insult. I was going to say it almost sounds like, yeah, wouldn't it be have been great if someone like that existed? Yeah, but I'm people not, like I'm to believe sure she existed. That. We definitely like to believe she existed. So we're going to go with it. We're going to go with it. I mean, she we was, know she existed, but yeah. like, I feel like, yeah, she's like, oh, wouldn't it be great if women had all that power? Like, no, she fucking did. She, she wrote did. all that shit herself. Um, and Heduana is also the subject of an episode called The Immortals. That's the name of the episode, not the show. I was going to say, um, is that a It's TV on the show? science television show called Cosmos, A Space-Time Odyssey, oh. where she is voiced by Christiane Amanpour, which is great. Nice. Um, and then in 2015, the International Astronomical Union named a crater on Mercury after her. Oh, my God. We have two crater ladies in a row. We should, like, m- find a list of all the la- all the ladies to see, like all we've covered that's on that list you know i bet there could be a podcast that is just famous women that have space shit named you know, after them if we, if we run out of random ladies that's what we'll do we'll just be like all right pulling up mercury <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna throw a dart at the craters of venus and just fucking go for that it would actually be like a really interesting way to do it god that would we might have to do that at some point excuse me while i google the craters of venus well, this one was Mercury, so we might have to pull yeah. up multiple crater areas. And isn't Mercury, wasn't he the gr- gr- Roman? Yeah. God of war? I said, I said Mars. I meant Roman. Yes. Okay. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> you know, I actually just got done listening to the soundtrack for Hades Town, which is a Broadway musical based on Greek mythology. It's It's the retelling of Orpheus and Eurydice. And it's fucking oh, maybe, amazing. Maybe he, I lied. He's not Mars is oh, the Roman god of war. Mercury, Mercury is Hades. Is, is Hermes. Hermes? Hermes. He's oh, the messenger shit. god. Who was, who was Hades? Uh, Hades Neptune? is Neptune. Damn. Why am I so dumb right now? <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. That's why I said Mars, though, is because Mars yeah. is the, the Roman god Mars of war. Mars is war. Mercury is Hades. Okay. Hermes. And then Neptune. Hermes. That's I. I meant and that. Neptune is Neptune Hades. is Hades. Those damn H names. They get me every time. I I was a really big um like Greek uh deity buff. That's yeah. not the word I was looking for, but pantheon. You were super into it. I think that was you know yeah. And so like I know most of the Greek gods 
and I can usually tell you their Roman equivalent. I, Not always. I remember usually. I had this book where it was all about the different like Greek myths and etc. And I remember reading about the myth of uh, Persephone. But because I'd never heard anyone say the name Persephone, I pronounced it Persephone. And I finally... It's kind of how it's spelled. It's P-E-R-S-E phone. P-H-O-N-E. Like, I don't know how else my child self was supposed to, you know, read that. Well, there's so many different iterations of that. Like, because there's iterations of where, like, Hades, you know, Persephone never loved Hades, even though she keeps going back to the underworld, like, kind of a thing. But, like... Most people are like, no, obviously they like loved each other. The only reason she goes home is because of her mom. Well, and there and, are know, others. That's, that's where, why we have spring and winter. And there are or, others where she like, eh, she wasn't super cool about, but then she got really into being yeah. the queen of hell. And she's yeah. like, there's actually a your punk so side. If you've ever heard of like the Webtoon comics, there's one on there. Yes. Um, I get called, ads for it's those. It's called Lore Olympus. And it's about Hades and Persephone, but it's like way modern and it's really interesting. I had to stop reading Webtoon comics because that's like all I would do then. (laughs) Because I'd get into like three or four comic series and then that's like, you know, I'd want to like read them from beginning to end. Although most of them aren't ended yet, you know, so then like every week I'd be like, okay, what's, you know, so I had to stop doing that. But like Lore Olympus was... It's really good, but it tackles a lot of big issues because there are a lot of huge issues in Greek mythology, yeah. one of which being Persephone gets assaulted. Yeah. And so they cover that. Like, they don't really, like, they kind of show it, but, like, in a very classy way. <laughs> as classy as you can be about something like that. In a in a way that's not disrespectful to the situation? Exactly. Okay. Like, you know, it's, it's not like, oh, here's a bunch of nudity while she's being assaulted, you know? Yeah. Like, no, it's tasteful assault i don't know how to like say that correctly it's, there is no tasteful assault no it's it's, it's written in an honest and it's so i i actually i wrote i was assaulted when i was 19 yep. and i wrote about it for some of my writing classes and i got heavily criticized by some of my male classmates who were saying Just like bullshit. it i won't get into it but it was a really difficult yeah, I, time i remember i remember because we were roommates and yeah. i was like <laughs> i was very upset about it well, because it was i was bullshit it was it was fucking dumb but i went to my uh my professor um and i was like did i really just fuck up telling this story and she's like you know the important thing you told it honestly but you didn't tell it in a way that glorified right? the assault and th- and or exactly made it how sexy that is. And, it's, and it's or... very from like her perspective so it's yeah. like it's fo- it's very focused on her during the attack and like yeah. how she's feeling and what she's thinking which i think is the way if you're gonna portray something like that that's the way to portray it yeah yeah because it doesn't romanticize it it doesn't glorify glorify it. it it doesn't make it like ooh sexy you know yeah maybe it's not actually assault like in like, some uh, yeah. she's into it no but yeah so if you want to read like a web a web comic about the myths but like modernized that lore olympus is a pretty good one and it, it's specifically about persephone and Hades, but it throws in other things too yeah. and it's great but i'm like oh, i know that story nice so yeah I'm gonna go check on Who were we talking about? <laughs> and Heduana. <laughs> and Heduana. And we swapped to Greek gods. Oh my god. There's so much though. It's such a fascinating topic. I mean, I could literally do just like on Greek goddesses. I could do like an entire probably like I bet that podcast, podcast is out there. I oh, bet I that podcast you. is out there. If you're out there, let us know. 
but you should listen to Hades Town because that's a really good musical. It's it it combines the oh. myth of Hades and Persephone along with the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice, and that's the one where she dies and he goes to hell to bring her back. And he can't turn around. Yeah, and yeah. then he fucks. And then he up. does, and it's like you're an idiot. Uh, I almost can't listen. Like I listened to it through, and I got really mad at work, and like was like. Damn, I'm crabby now. I'm going to answer all these emails. Like I just yelled into my microphone, you're an idiot. That would have been me <laughs> listening to that podcast. Yeah. That's what I do when I look like. So yeah, way to get off track on Greek gods. That was an awesome story, though. I really, I liked it. And we usually don't go that far back. So it's really right. interesting because there's this argument that, oh, well, you know, because of the traditional gender roles of ancient times, this is why we don't talk about women history. It's like, no, actually. I was just saying, yet a lot like the uh, some, the other, I think I've only covered one other woman that was BC, the pharaoh. That was one of the like, like, Yeah. Yeah. Like, it happens. Like, yeah. I feel like they were less strict on gender roles back then than we are now. The Explorers podcast actually covers Hatshepsut and some other female pharaohs in some really great episodes that give you a lot of context right. to, like, women's role in ancient Egypt and also how some of the female gods were extremely powerful. That just shows that women were revered. I mean, there is some gender bullshit, but there is in every society because we can't get our shit together. Anyway. And the one thing I didn't mention about her father, Sargon the Great, um, he himself is the earliest known emperor. Oh. Because, you know, he, like, conquered and, you know, united Mesopotamia. So he's known as the earliest known, like, emperor in human history. That's super cool. At least that's what it says. Damn. But, yeah. All right. So, yeah, I saw that on Reddit and I was like, save. And then I went and did my research. <laughs> That's usually what I do is I, I see stuff as I'm scrolling. I love how we come across some of these women. Actually, speaking of Reddit, I have another say their name oh, that I forgot at please the beginning of do. our episodes. So the person I'm shouting out is still alive. And I don't have much. This was literally just a Reddit video, but I saw it and I was like, I have to shout this out. Even okay. though no one's probably going to care. So Fallon Sherrick, who's a woman. I'm sorry if I mispronounced the name, just became, so this must have happened this year. Oh! She just became the first woman to beat a man at the World Darts Championship. Oh, this was not what I was thinking of. So Damn! Good on her. <laughs> the World Darts Championship. I love it. Yeah. Well, you know, actually, there is a history. So when yeah, I that think was darts. The 2020 World Championship. I don't know. They must play like the, I don't know, but that's what it says. Okay. And she won. And it's awesome. You know, there is uh, this interesting, like, sexism when it comes to bars. So I think darts, I think bars. And actually, women were kept out of bars for a period of time. And actually, part of, like, suffrage and women's rights was campaigning to being allowed into bars, you know? And again, the Explorers podcast does a great episode on, like, beer making and how it was originally a women's profession but then when it became easier to do, men took it over because they saw financial gain and worked very hard on demonizing women yeah. who made beer. And that's where we get a lot of the witch stereotypes right. of like the cauldron and the familiar and this and that. Exactly. So I, I have one other thing that I found on Reddit. That yeah, I just please do. Say. It was another today I learned. Doing our Reddit um, corner. Yeah, I should just have that. I should just have the women of Reddit. <laughs> just a little thing. So this, I just saw this on Today I Learned and I wanted to share it with people. And I meant to share it with you earlier, but if I can share it with you on the podcast and get your reaction on air, it's going to be even better. Oh, there's a lot so of So Today now. I Learned, 
that Amelia Earhart and Eleanor Roosevelt once snuck out of the White, a White House event together, commandeered an airplane, and went for a, went on a joyride to Baltimore. Yeah. I read that and I was like, I lo- Emily needs to know this. I love stories of like famous or powerful people who just kind of prove that they're like us because they're just a bunch of little scoundrels. But then right. two extremely prominent women do it and it's, are it's like, just fantastic. Oh my god! Oh my god, Eleanor! You know, it'd be so much fun. Let me take you in my plane because that shit is no. Incredible. It wasn't even her plane. They just commandeered <laughs> a plane. Amelia, you don't. Did you bring a plane I, I like, here? I like to envision that they can commandeered like uh, Air Force One or whatever the president's. Because <laughs> what other plane would be on the grounds of the White House? Amelia, you didn't bring your plane here. I'll find a fucking plane, right. Eleanor. You're the goddamn yeah, I love first that they, like, lady. Went to Baltimore, like how random. Goddamn, that is fantastic. Yeah, I saw that and I was like, Emily needs to know this, and now all our podcast viewers know it, and it's great. They went to go visit Edgar Allan Poe's grave. That's yeah. my history head sure, canon. Good. Well, I'm good with that. All right. Now, who are you talking about okay. today? So I'm talking today about Margaret Brown, who you might know as the unsinkable Molly Brown. Uh, I just like read something about her the other day and I don't remember what now. So I'm was, really excited that you're covering her. So I so we're recording two episodes in a row and this was like my kind of cop. I'm like, I'm just going to do something that's really quick I because I know her story. Molly Brown, though. Here's the thing. It goes her, so much deeper than you know. Her story is not what I thought it was. It goes it is, so much it deeper. It is not just the Titanic. It is. There's a lot more to the unsinkable Molly Brown than you may realize. Yeah. And we're going to get into her. it. So lock this shit in for your next cocktail party. When people start bitching about how Jack and Rose could have fit on the door, you can be like, well, actually, uh, Kathy Bates' Molly Brown never even went by that name. And I'm going to give you a bunch of cool stuff as, you know, <laughs> right. You're in your arsenal of cocktail herstory banter. So fucking buckle up. All right. Margaret's Irish immigrant parents had this almost Brady Bunch story. Her father, John Tobin, was a widower with one daughter, while her mother, Johanna, was a widow with one daughter. So like... You just said one daughter for both of them. Yeah. So okay. the 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 dad's wife died... And he had a daughter. Yep. And then the mom's husband died and, and she, she had, had one daughter. daughter. Okay. So, so uh, then they married and joined forces and then had four children together. Oh, so geez. a total of six children with the two parents. They definitely had a maid named Alice, at least a cat named Alice. Right. I don't there know. There was an Alice in there somewhere. There was an Alice in there. So Margaret uh, was born on July 18th, 1867 in a hospital along the Mississippi River in Hannibal, Missouri. She would grow up in a cottage also along the Mississippi with her five siblings and attended a grammar school run by her aunt, Mary O'Leary, who was trying to lay low after her cow burned down Chicago, which is actually a myth. It was like an anti-Irish myth, but I thought it was funny. It was funny. I was like, why does O'Leary sound? It's because of that stupid rhyme. Mrs. O'Leary's cow burnt down Chicago There was like a a song about it. Yeah. It's just a bunch of, like, anti-Irish bullshit, but I'm you know. using it. Anyway. Was that up- actually, like, a thing? Was her... Was that actually her no, aunt? Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> I was like, wait, was that actually her aunt? Or are you just... I, like... <laughs> 
did she I put go it, to a school run by her aunt or is yes. that okay? No, she went to a school run by her aunt whose name was Mary O'Leary and then I made a joke. Okay. okay. No, that's what I was asking. I was like, was Mary O'Leary really? I know the cow thing was the- Let the, me okay. continue explaining <laughs> my joke that clearly did not land the way I wanted it to. Anyway. I, I got it, but I didn't fully get it. So growing up, Margaret worked stripping tobacco leaves at the local tobacco company. You know, that's the thing. It's pretty typical. When she was 18 years old, Margaret would join her sister, Mary Ann, who was moving with her husband, Jack, to the mining town of Leadville, Colorado, to start a blacksmith shop, waiting for the day that pot would be legal. They wouldn't live to see that day. But (laughs) everyone in Colorado, but everyone in Colorado is pretty fucking stoked. She got a job at a local store working in the carpets and drapery department. Ooh, fancy. Very fancy. In 1886, Margaret met James Joseph J.J. Abrams Brown. I think I added Abrams as a joke, but I did not indicate in my notes. (laughs) (laughs) You should just like highlight the jokes in other colors so you remember. For the O'Leary joke, I put in parentheses so I would remember that it was in fact a joke and that wasn't the O'Leary whose cow allegedly burned down Chicago. So JJ was a minor and also a child of Irish immigrants. They fell hard for each other and married in September of the same year. It must have been a joke because yes, his name yes. his name was just James Joseph Brown. I need to remember to parentheses my jokes. Okay. I think I realized it was so absurd that there was no way I would think it JJ was serious. Abram Brown. But then I forgot I'd be on my second glass, third glass of wine by now. Yeah. So anyway, so within like a ma- minimum or no, maximum three-month courtship, they fucking got married. They would have two children, and Margaret said of J.J., I wanted a rich man, but I loved Jim Brown. I thought about how I wanted comfort for my father and how I had determined to stay single until a man presented himself who could give the tired old man the things I longed for him. Jim was as poor as we were and had no better chance in life. I struggled hard with myself in those days. I loved Jim, but he was poor. Finally, I decided I'd be better off with a poor man whom I loved than a wealthy one whose money had attracted me. So I married Jim Brown. That's cute. Oh my God. She married for love and it's adorable. Now, Margaret joined the the growing ranks of people who had this crazy idea that women deserved equal rights and established the Colorado chapter of the National American Women's Suffrage Association. She also volunteered in the soup kitchens, serving the families of struggling minors. That's cute. Yeah. She's she's like a sweet lady. lady, She's like day one. She's just very sweet. And because she and her own family have struggled, I think she understands and has empathy. Obviously are still struggling because her husband's not rich. Exactly. During this time, the Sherman Silver Purchase Act was in place. This act increased the amount of silver the government was required to purchase to 4.5 million ounces per month. So basically, the government was required to purchase this much silver a month, which ensured people mining for silver, like in Leadville, Colorado, were fucking doing well. This was a response to the free silver movement, which advocated for no limits on turning silver into money, as opposed to the more restricted gold standard. With the mandated demand of silver, silver miners in Leadville had steady work. However, when the act was repealed in 1893, 90% of the town became unemployed. Yeah. I don't know if I totally agree with the act in the first place. Like, I don't want all these people to be unemployed, but it's like... I'm like, it's kind of your own fault that you 
put that act into place, which was like, oh, we all have jobs, kind of. It it seems weird to mandate that the government is required to purchase a certain, like, volume of thing every month yeah but but this was like a big like economic stance i'm sure it was but it was still weird it's still weird and i think it was i mean the gold standard was still in place and blah 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 you can buy our podcast government for however many hours per month i'll do that our podcast government no the the government can buy our podcast (laughs) for however many hours a month and i will podcast for them i was like when do we become a dot gov well, if they pay us, I'll become a dot. <laughs> we'll become a dot a lot of things. <laughs> However, Margaret's husband, JJ, who was the superintendent of the local mining properties, developed an innovative method that allowed the miners to bypass the sand that prevented them from digging deeper and reaching the gold. I didn't get super into it because it wasn't terribly important to the story, but basically there was sand blocking the gold and he came up with an idea about how to get to the gold, which the government super needed. And he became rich. This led him to become one of the most successful mining men in the nation. Go, J.J. Abrams. With this success... His name's not J.J. <laughs> it is in my heart. <laughs> <laughs> With this success came money. See, this is why you marry for love. Yeah. The money I will it come. It just comes. Do who you love and the money will come. <laughs> I'm going to get that on a t-shirt. Margaret and her husband purchased a new home and achieved the ultimate 1800 sign of wealth. They built a summer home. That's still a sign of fucking wealth. It is, but like, I feel like that was such a thing in the 1800s. I mean, now it's actually probably like less of a sign of wealth because like you always hear in the midwest like oh everybody has a cabin. Well, I feel like that's a little different than a, you know, palatial summer home. But yeah, I I don't have a cabin. I, I would like a cabin. I never felt like a Minnesotan because I didn't have yeah, a cabin. No. I didn't have a boat and I, mean, I had no lake access. I lived on a lake, so we didn't really need a cabin. You were as Minnesotan as you could get. Yes. You didn't need the cabin because we you already lived, lived on, on the lake. lake. Yeah. Margaret adjusted well to the newfound wealth and became fluent in French, German, Italian, and Russian. So literally <laughs> girl. every language like every that major terrifies language, me. Yeah. She gained a particular taste for French culture and art, going as far as to found the Alliance Francaise to promote the appreciation of French culture. Mm. So she's like, she's like, yeah, I'm I'm good at being rich. I can do this. Yeah. In 1909, after 23 years of marriage, Margaret and JJ signed a separation agreement. They never got back together, but stayed friendly throughout their lives. When he passed away in 1922, Margaret said of him, I've never met a finer, bigger, more worthwhile man than J.J. Brown. So, like, they separate, but it sounds like it wasn't like a, you fucking bitch, you son of a bastard, like, kind of thing. Yeah. That makes me want to know what happened. I'm very curious. I couldn't find a lot of information. And honestly, it wasn't that big of a deal. I want to know. Yeah. The separation left Margaret with a cash settlement, the summer home, the primary home, a lodge, wow. and $700 wait, a wait, month. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> she got the primary home, the summer home, and a lodge? Yes. What is and a lodge? Is that like a winter home? It, it was like a cabin. Like, in Minnesota, we consider a cabin a summer home, but they're like, no, that's the lodge. Okay. That's the lodge. And then 700 So she got a cash settlement and then $700 a month. Yeah. And so the $700 a month translates to 
$19,785.23 in today's needs money. To, like make money and then I need to I just need seven I just need that money. I need to marry someone. They get rich and then I separate them on good terms and get a fuck ton of money every month. I figured out my life plan. Next time I'm in an interview and they ask me, where do you see yourself in five years? Hopefully married to a rich guy. Happily separated from my husband who will give me $19,000 every month. So. And the summer home. And And the lodge. And the summer home. And and the the primary home. And a cash settlement. God damn. (laughs) So money didn't make Margaret forget her passions, though, because she's a grounded lady. She continued to advocate for women's rights and generally be an amazing philanthropist. Her contributions are so many that it was easier just to list them out in bullet points. Now, some of these things, I'm not entirely sure about where they fall in the timeline of her life, but... That's fine. This is just things she philanthropized. Yeah, things she philanthropized. (laughs) Things she philamped with. Okay. Her philanthropic pursuits. (laughs) There you go. She became- I like that you can say philanthropic, <laughs> but not philanthropize. Philanthropize. There, there we go. I had to. I liked the thing she philamped with. <laughs> That's the one we're going with. I forgot how to tie my shoes, but I can <laughs> say philanthropized. She became a founding member of the Denver Women's Club. The club advocated for literacy, education, suffrage, and human rights within Colorado and oh, na- nationally. She also helped raise funds to build a church in St. Joseph's Hospital in Colorado. She worked with a judge to help establish the first juvenile court in the country, which became wow. the basis for the entire U.S. juvenile court system. I know that shit can get fucked up, but, like, that's pretty impressive. Yeah. She helped destitute children. In her free time, she studied literature, language, and drama at the Carnegie Institute in New York. Jesus. Not philanthropizing, but still really impressive. Not only did she raise her own two children, she raised her brother's three daughters after their mother died. Wow. She organized an international women's rights conference, which was attended by activists from all over the world. Good God, Margaret. Now, all of this badassery. You should have said good golly, Miss Molly. Good golly, Miss Molly. You really missed out on that one. Damn it. Well, because she didn't use that I know. I know. But people know her as that. Oh, man. If you're going to say J.J. Abrams, you can say (laughs) good golly, Miss Molly. Good golly, Miss Molly. Now, all of this badassery was exhausting, and Margaret figured she had earned a little break. Remember, self-care is important. And what better self-care for a wealthy lady than a trip around Egypt? Oh, that's fine. Actually, maybe not right now. Don't do that right now. No. God, I would love to see the pyramids, though. so bad. (sighs) I tried to convince my parents once, and they were like, you know, it's a war-torn country right now, right? And I'm like, and? And they're like, no, you can't go. And I was like, okay. This was still when my parents were funding things. Yeah. Back when I had money. Back when your because parents, my had parents mo- were funding, yeah. <laughs> when you had money this vicariously was when I was in through your parents, yeah. so, so I didn't get to go to Egypt, but I want to. I remember my high school did one of those things where they're like, "Oh, you could go to Egypt for spring break or something like that," and I really wanted to do it, but my parents are like, "We'll save that money and you can travel abroad in college when you can appreciate more." And I'm glad they did because I, I went to Scotland for three well, see, fucking months. Thing. Like, I wish I would have saved it for college. Instead, I went to England for like three weeks or two weeks. My senior year. Actually, we need to week. we need to go back to the Tower yeah. of London together. We do. It. I felt you there. I know. 
I felt you so deeply. Actually, I didn't know you yet. I felt you no. spiritually yes. like, through through the future. Why do I feel so warm and comforted in this place of death and sadness? I still have my little like headsman's block. <laughs> and it's not like the guillotine headsman. Yeah. Like, it's literally like a headsman block with an axe next to it. And it's I got it. I bought it at the Tower of London. And I know exactly what you're talking about because when I went there many years later, they still had that same fucking that. trinket. I have it. Love and then it. I have a raven that... Uh, my then boyfriend bought me and I'm never going to get rid of because it's a fucking raven from the Tower of London. I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm fucking never getting rid of that bird. So she's looking for some self-care. She's going to Egypt. In 1912, she joined John Jacob Astor IV, one of the richest dudes in the world. It's really funny because I'm like listening to this and I'm like, he was on the Titanic. That's all I can think about. You're spoiling the story. (laughs) You're not. No, Everyone knows the unsinkable Molly Brown. Anyway, he was one of the richest dudes in the world, yep. and there was like a bunch of other people yep. on the trip. So she was touring Egypt with a, with bunch, a bunch of rich, of rich people, people, you know, living the fucking dream. However, when Margaret received word that her eldest daughter—not daughter, grandchild—was ill, she booked passage on the first available liner for New York, the RMS Titanic. John Jacob and his wife Madeline joined her. Madeline had become pregnant. Yep, and she's super young. Become if you watch, pregnant. If you watch, if you watch Titanic, she's yeah. like super fucking young. So she had become pregnant, and the couple wanted their child to be born in the I'm United sorry. States. That's not how you're supposed to say it back then. I believe it's she became in a family way. Oh no, she fell pregnant. She became afflicted by pregnancy. No, I, I think in Titanic, that's how they say it. they're like, "Oh, she's in a family way or something." I haven't seen that movie in forever I know, I because it. it's. I like, have it on VHS, two disc oh or two two tape VHS. I remember that being so mind blowing. Like, oh my god, this movie's so long; it requires two tapes. What the fuck? I think it's a two sided DVD too. Yeah, it's a long something. Fucking I don't know. Movie. But, like, I haven't seen Titanic in forever because it's, like, two hours of boring, one hour of tragedy. See, I always really like Titanic. Like, even the boring parts. Because I, I'm, a, I'm a person that likes to, like, learn about other people. And that's what the two hours of boring are, basically. Yeah. See, I had already done, a, like, a ton of reading. And I, I was just in it for the sinking. I didn't care about Jack. I didn't You're care fine. about Rose because I was too young. And then the sinking finally came. And I have never bitch cried harder in my life. We need to rewatch that at some point. Oh, my God. I need so much whiskey i will cry it's gonna be bad that should be our patreon content just emily bitch crying to fucking titanic god damn anyway so margaret's daughter was supposed to join her on the voyage but decided to stay in paris where she was attending school good well i mean it depends because if if it's her daughter if it's margaret's daughter's daughter that's sick no that mom should probably go back to be with her no child. i i don't assume think it's it her other daughter though. yeah because i don't th- I don't think the mom was studying in Paris while her kid was back in Colorado. Yeah, no. I, sick, I don't so. think so. So the Titanic was reported to be unsinkable and was the latest and greatest in cruise liner technology. So what could possibly go wrong? Margaret and the Astors boarded the ship on April 10th, 1912 as first class passengers. They enjoyed amenities including an indoor pool, five star dining and luxurious accommodations. Unfortunately, fate and nature don't give a shit about how fancy your ship is. On April 14th, 1912, the Titanic struck an iceberg and sank around 2.20 a.m. on the 15th. If, if you ever want to, like, read about, like, people's greatest fuck-ups, like, actually read the story of the Titanic and how people were just being fucking stupid about it. I mean, it's in the movie, too, that the guy was just like, let's go faster and, like, break records. And the ship captain was like, icebergs. And the guy was like, but records. And the captain was like, yeah. 
Okay. There was So then they sped up and then they fucking hit an iceberg <laughs> because they weren't paying attention. Kelly is very passionate about how fucking unnecessary this was. Ah! No, it is really but it frustrating. Is. It's basically like a line of fuck ups like, mm-hmm. that all just happened in succession. And then nature was just like, I'm going to take advantage of this. By the way, if anyone can listen, I uh, any of those bumps is Kelly like aggressively hitting the table while she's oh, gesturing. <laughs> No, 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 that's fine. I just, because you're just like, all of these fuck ups. I'm not actually hitting the, I'm hitting my laptop. I should probably not do that. So uh, I didn't get too much into the Titanic sinking because that's not what this is about. We all kind of know what happened. So as the ship was sinking, Margaret got to work helping passengers get into lifeboats. She eventually boarded lifeboat number six, which safely made it into the water. Can I do a side note? Please do. Okay, so in on the in the movie, do you remember the guy that was like an asshole, like the one person oh, officer? Like, he, oh, that he was he like shot somebody. He ended up shooting someone because oh, he was shit. like women and children first. Yeah, and then like a men put. Yeah, apparently he wasn't like that in real life. Like in real life, the guy that guy I think his name was like Percy or something was actually like super nice. Helped a ton of people like get onto the lifeboats and went down with the ship. Oh, you know what? Okay. Extra side note, second level side note. There, the I Titanic. That on Reddit too. <laughs> the Titanic is such an incredible story. Like it, it's this incredible human story. It really is. And you didn't need to make someone an asshole to tell a compelling story. I know, I was they really... already created roses. But yeah. So just the Titanic's he- bullshit. That's just, what we're... just a heads up. Our our magic box kind of cut out on us in the middle of an epic Titanic rant. So we're picking up now, and we're we're getting back to Margaret's story yeah, because she's more than the Titanic. <laughs> yes, she is. She's. But she's, we're gonna keep talking about the Titanic yeah, for a are. little bit. So okay, so she uh, boarded lifeboat number six, which made it into the water safely. As the ship continued to sink and passengers began leaping from the ship and were stranded in the freezing water, Margaret grabbed an oar and demanded that they go back to save survivors. Quartermaster Robert Hitchens, the crewman in charge of the lifeboat Margaret was on, wouldn't allow it, fearing that survivors would tip the lifeboat in their desperation to live. So, like, he was so, like, a bunch of people are going to storm the lifeboat. We're all going to go down and we're so all going to die. It's incredible to me, like, hearing this story, which is fact, and being like, shit, that's actually what happened in the movie. Like, See, I, really, I don't remember that I'm part really of the movie. I'm really glad they, like, at least in some respects tried to be semi-accurate yeah and here's the thing i don't agree with his concerns but no. i kind of get it because people especially people who are drowning or desperate oh, yeah, to they're survive gonna panic. yeah that's just that's what we do i get it uh, that would be hard though to like yeah. sit out there in the lifeboat and just listen to everybody screaming and then well, like slowly fall silent margaret was not going to put up with the crewman's decision she argued with the man and when he continued to refuse margaret threatened to throw him overboard if he didn't go back for people so there's a lot of stories surrounding whether or not margaret was successful in rescuing survivors like whether she got the boat to go back and then whether they were able to find anyone alive But the story alone cemented her as a legend. She was dubbed the unsinkable Molly Brown by the newspapers for her heroism. Unfortunately, her friend John Jacob Astor did not survive, but his pregnant wife did. So there's that. Because I I read about it a little. He got his wife into um, A a lifeboat. And then there are some stories that 
he was going to get in, but like he let some children go instead or people were like, no, it's women and children first. And, you know, it sounds like he wasn't an asshole or anything. Maybe he wasn't like super heroic, but he, you know, he went down with the ship, but his pregnant wife survived. He made sure that she got on a lifeboat. So that was it's still kind of a bummer. I actually, uh, when I graduated from high school, because I was so into the Titanic, my parents took me to the traveling exhibit because it was in Minneapolis. And you get a little, like, a passenger car. Yeah, it was really cool. And at the very end, you get to find out if you lived or died. And if you had a guy, you 99% died because it was women and, and children, children first. first. So well, Sexism it, wins sometimes for well, us. Well, sexism and money. Yeah. Because... General, the people that survived were generally women and children of the first and second class. Oh, they like because they basically like locked the third class passengers. Yeah, like they were like mm, no. Yeah, there was a lot of sexism, but there was also a lot of classism at play, and you know, didn't work out for everyone. It was no. kind of a bummer. So after Margaret and the others were rescued by the RMS Carpathia, she put her passion for advocacy to work and organized a survivors committee made up of other first-class survivors who worked to supply basic necessities to second- and third-class survivors. Aww. Yeah, the people who really fucking needed it because they were lucky That's enough to survive really nice. and they don't have the money to cope with all this bullshit. Because the, the, the Titanic was not just like a cruise line. Like, you go on a Disney cruise. That's just for fun. People were genuinely using the Titanic to get from England for transportation. To New York. Yeah. This wasn't just for fun for some of the people, a lot of the people. I think for two thirds of, of the people. I was going to say, I don't really know if it was, I mean, it's not intended to be a cruise ship. It was going from London to New York. Like, yeah. Yeah, it was going to be a better trip for the first class passengers, but that doesn't necessarily mean they were doing it for fun. Right. So uh, she all they also provided counseling to help them cope with the trauma Aww. of almost dying and yeah. probably losing a lot of people important to them. So mental health is care important. is very important. She also awarded the captain of the Carpathia with a silver cup and each crew member with a medal Aww. for their like heroism yeah. in responding to the Titanic. Margaret wrote to her daughter of the attention she received after the sinking, quote, after being brine salted and pickled in mid-ocean, I am now high and dry. I have had flowers, letters, telegrams, people until I am befuddled. They are petitioning Congress to give me a medal. If I must call a specialist to examine my head, it is due to the title of heroine of the Titanic. So she's kind of like joking about it. She's like, oh, after, you know, being stuck out in the fucking ocean, I'm high and dry and all these people are giving me attention. And like, right. if I get a little big of a head of it, you know. That's interesting. Also, because she's a sass queen, Margaret wrote to her attorney, quote, Thanks for the kind thoughts. Water was fine and swimming good. Neptune was exceedingly kind to me, and I am now high and dry. Like, fucking A. That's hilarious. Right. I feel like I would be a real sass about surviving a tragedy, oh, I would, too. I would be, too. Like, it's a coping mechanism, and I don't feel that she was belittling the deaths of thousands of people at all. No. It's just like, oh my god, I survived. And I'm going to cope with inappropriate humor. Let's do this. Right. That would definitely be us. Despite her apparent humor regarding her own survival, the tragedy of the sinking was not lost on Margaret. In honor of the victims, Margaret helped erect the Titanic Memorial that can still be found in Washington, D.C. She also visited Fairview Cemetery in Halifax, Nova Scotia, where over 100 victims of the sinking were buried. There, she placed wreaths on their graves. Aww. 
I didn't even know it. that was a thing. Yeah, I I feel like I vaguely heard about it, but I didn't realize. Though Margaret had survived the sinking and was fiercely advocating for survivors, she was not allowed to testify at the Titanic disaster hearings, which were meant to understand the events of that fateful night and what had caused the unsinkable ship to fail on its maiden voyage. We know now it was a deadly combination of poor design, human arrogance, weather, and a lack of common sense safety precautions, which Kelly and I have already exceedingly ranted about because goddammit. <laughs> Come on. Why wasn't she allowed to testify? I know you're asking, dear listener and Kelly. Well, it was our favorite reason. She was a woman. See, I, I was I was thinking it was either she was a woman or, you know, how like sometimes in trials they don't want like someone that's been like in the media. I'm like, it's going to be some combination of she's a woman and she's too popular. No, it was definitely the less reasonable option. Right. She she can't testify. She doesn't know how ships work. She's a woman. Her breasts just disqualify her. Her vagina, her womanliness just completely Everything. disqualify just... her from understanding and having been there at all. Yeah. And you know what? Because 90% of the dudes on the ship died, I guess we'll just never fucking know. Right. We'll just hear from, like, the three people that didn't want to go back for other surfaces. <laughs> So, in defiance of this nonsense, Margaret published her own account of the event, which was published in newspapers in Denver, New York, and Paris. Nice. Yes. Now, you'd think after nearly dying in one of the most infamous tragedies of the 20th century, Margaret would have wanted to take it easy. No. No, because she's a fucking queen. Her notoriety only made her more powerful. On April 20th, 1914, the Colorado National Guard opened fire on a group of armed coal miners who were striking for better working conditions and pay. Then, yes, there's a then, they set fire to a makeshift settlement where over a thousand striking workers and their families, including children, were living. This became known as the Ludlow Massacre. Margaret was horrified. She had yeah. lived in Colorado, in, in a Colorado mining community, and supported struggling miners and their families by working in the soup kitchen. Margaret turned her horror into action and became a prominent figure in advocating for labor rights. She's like, okay, these people are striking for better working conditions, and you murdered them. And their families. And their families. Like, am I the only one that realizes that's that's fucking awful? Right? Like, who goes, okay, you want better conditions, so we're going to burn your fucking town down. Yeah. It was fucked. So that same year, Margaret ran for the Senate and became one of the first women to run for political office in the United States, eight years before women even had the right to vote. Right. She also partnered with notable suffragette Alice Paul and advocated for workers' rights at the 1916 Conference of Great Women. Wow. At the outbreak of World War I, or the Great War, as it was known by those blissful fools, Margaret partnered with the Red Cross to set up care facilities in Rhode Island and then traveled overseas to work with the American Committee for Devastated France, which worked to help France and their citizens recover from the devastation of World War I. Jesus. Yeah, she does not stop. You'd think there were no more worlds for Margaret to conquer, but that's why you're not a philanthropic. God damn, <laughs> that fucking word. That's my that's my uh, astrology astronomy word. Astronomical. Astro astrologian. Astrologian. Yeah. What? Astro astrologian. Astronom. <laughs> this isn't. This isn't okay. Anyway, 
we're too deep. This is why you're not a philanthropic badass. Margaret decided to pursue a personal passion and become an actress in the 1920s and 30s and regularly performed on stage in Paris and New York in La Aglion, a play based on the life of Napoleon II, son of the Napoleon we're more familiar with. So she she's like, okay, I'm saving the world. And now I'm going to become a fucking actress in New York and Paris because why, why the not? hell not? Yeah. Exactly. Margaret kept killing it all the way to the end. She died on October 26th in 1932 in her sleep of a brain tumor. And she died in this like nice hotel where she was staying and teaching actresses how to act. Like she's working. Right. <laughs> She was buried next to her beloved husband, JJ, in Long Island's Holy Rood Cemetery. So they never actually, like, got divorced. They separated. Okay. Yeah, I don't think that they ever fully got divorced, and it was all really amicable. I think, like, maybe he was just doing his thing, and she was doing her thing, and I don't know. I don't know. Like I said, anyone out there, email me if you know, because I want to know. Legacy. In honor of her work to help rebuild France after World War I, a commemorative plaque at the Chateau of Blurincourt, a French-American museum, bears her name. Aww. In 1932, the same year she died, Margaret was awarded the French Legion of Honor for, quote, overall good citizenship, which included her lifetime of advocacy, work for women, Titanic survivors, and laborers. Aww. Yeah. I think she I think she received that before she died, but it was yeah. the same year. In 1985, she was inducted into the Colorado Women's Hall of Fame. She has been portrayed by Cloris Leachman twice, Debbie Reynolds, and Kathy Bates. She actually uh, kind of looks like Kathy Bates if you actually like look up yeah, photos of I, her like I can see it. And basically I just listed my favorite actresses right. that portrayed her, but the first time she was portrayed in a movie was 1953 wow margaret is best known as the unsinkable molly brown but she never actually went by the name molly that one that one looks a lot like kathy yeah no it does sorry (laughs) no no you're absolutely right seriously google kathy bates titanic and then google margaret Margaret brown Brown and you will see for margaret brown it's the second picture that pops up I feel like Kathy Bates is kind of, has kind of Margaret Brown energy. Like, I feel like they She's both sassy. have this oh, air yeah. of like, I can do anything because I'm a fucking badass. If you get in my way, I will crush you. Right. I love Kathy Bates, too. So she never actually went by the name Molly. This was an invention of newspapers in Hollywood. Also probably had something to do with the fact she was Irish because we were super not cool about Irish people. Right. Her legacy and myth were then reinforced by the 1960 musical The Unsinkable Molly Brown and the 1964 film adaptation, but it starred Re- Debbie Reynolds, so I get it. And actually, I watched a trailer for the movie, and I highly recommend everyone go watch it because it is hilarious. Wait, which one? The Unsinkable, the Unsinkable Mo- Molly Brown. I know, but I'm reading the description, and I'm like, you got her story so wrong. Actually, it's really funny that you mentioned that because my notes say... Just to get an idea of how much the movie differs from Margaret's story, the plot is that Margaret is rescued from the Colorado River as an infant by Seamus Tobin because they had to make his name super Irish. 
She moves to Leadville to hunt down a rich man and works yep. as a saloon singer. She does marry Johnny, but they do and they do become wealthy. But then there's a subplot about her almost getting together with a French prince and trying to prove herself to and the Denver burns, elite. And then she burns her money in a stove, which they mention in Titanic. They do? Yes. Oh, I never read anything there's, about that. There's I don't think she actually did. No, there's Molly the Molly Brown paid, played by Kathy Bates at as I think Jack's passing her in one time. She's talking. She's making a joke. She, and she, she goes, oh, and he, he didn't know. Not knowing the money was in there. He turned it on and burned all the money. Like, oh he makes God. a joke about money burning in a stove. And I wonder if it's because of this movie. That's fucking funny. So also, according to the trailer, there's a song that the adult Molly sings about how she's determined to learn to read and write. Let's remember, she did have an education, right. even if it was just from her aunt O'Leary. Okay. Like, well, obviously she had an education because then she went on to learn all those other yes! fucking languages. There's also there's also a bit in the trailer where like JJ first meets her or something and she's swimming it's, naked his in name a isn't pond. JJ. In this, it's well, it is. It's it's Johnny Brown. Yeah, they call, they call him, him Johnny in, Brown, which I'm like, no, it's Jim. At, JJ. At least. They I, they I know, refer she, to him as I know, JJ. but Molly or Margaret called him Jim. Like, yeah, you know, but basically he's watching her swim naked in this pond and Sounds she's like, right. how long have you been standing there? And he's like, long enough. <laughs> <laughs> Creep. Anyway, the real Margaret Brown was a philanthropist, human rights activist and all around larger than life lady. And I had no idea that this was her story. I actually thought she was also on the Lusitania for some reason. I did too. I, I remember reading that she was on two different ships that sang. She was she wasn't. Oh, it was just the Titanic and she don't get me wrong, she was a badass at the sinking of the Titanic and in life in general. But her true story is so much more incredible than you know, the the myth and the movie. So yeah, I mean that that's the ins- that's the story of Margaret the Unsinkable Molly Brown. That's wonderful. I like I and I it. love her. Like and I I've, I've read things here and there but like hearing her whole story as one chunk is great. Again, I thought this was going to be my like quick two-page story about a lady who survived two famous sinkings and it was so much more than that. So I was really excited. And she was only in one sinking. But she was even more incredible. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, thank you for that. Yeah. So, Kelly, what are you thankful for this week? Bagel bites. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. Bagel bites are amazing. No, I'm thankful for my husband who, like, we've needed to do cleaning for a while. And he really, like, stepped up and helped out today and, like, shampooed the carpets. And I'm really thankful for that. Like, not that he's, like, a terrible husband that's just, like, meh, women clean. But, like, you know, people get lazy. And sometimes I'll clean and he'll be, like, meh. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, I but think, I mean, sometimes he cleans and I go, meh. So, but I'm just really thankful that, like, we both, like, stepped up and did it and it looks really nice. Can I just say, there is nothing sexier than a partner who will clean with you. Anyone who's trying to, like, really seal the deal with their partner, or reinvigorate cl- your relationship, yeah, clean Either with cl- them. Clean with them or clean when they're not expecting it. And then they come home to it and they're like, oh, oh, damn. Oh, my God, you clean the house. Now clean my box or my penis or my whatever genitalia. Yeah. yeah. We're all inclusive about the genitalia over yeah. here. What are you thankful for? Now I'm just thinking about genitalia. <laughs> I know you are. <laughs> um, 
I'm really thankful that it um, for all of the support of the other history podcasts out there. I know that's what you said last time, but I'm really excited. There are some other amazing women that we are getting to connect with through this podcast. And men. And men. And we're very ex- I was thinking of someone in particular that you guys will hear about, but we're so excited to be a part of this community and get to connect with so many amazing people who are just straight up killing it. Right. And so thank you so much for reaching out to us and promoting us, but also just thank you for being amazing and putting out so much positivity and wonder into the world. Yes. 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 Yep. Yep. I'm just going to keep repeating you. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Whining About Herstory. Hit us up on Facebook at Whining About Herstory, Instagram, W-A-H pod, Twitter, W-A-H underscore pod. Send us an email. Uh, we'd love to hear about women, men, people in your life that are doing really cool shit. If you want us to cover a specific person or topic, even, we're, we're okay with doing topics. We haven't yet, but we'd be okay with it. Those women of, of the Venus craters aren't yeah. going to cover themselves. <laughs> right? Um <laughs> You know, we'll just create a little dartboard. I don't know. <laughs> but send us your emails at whiningaboutherstory at gmail.com or follow our blog and our show notes at whiningaboutherstory.com. Also, please subscribe to us on Patreon. It means so much. You can subscribe and support us for as little as $1 a month. Yes. And also rate us wherever you listen. Um, if you d- if you listen on Spotify and can't rate, please go to Facebook five stars and let us know what you think. Apple Podcasts is also huge. So if you listen to us there, and I know you do, I see those stats, please rate us five stars. We would love to hear from you. Five. Jazz hands. Jazz hands. Well, we hope you all have a wonderful new year, and we'll see you in 2020. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Whining About Herstory. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And have an empowered day. Bye. Bye.